0: Cast. Cast. What does motion sound like? With Kizzik Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Ah. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizzik.com socks.
1: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal And when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Today on the podcast, my guest is Monty Granger. Monty is a retired Army major who was called into action to set up the Army medical facilities at Guantanamo Bay right after 9-11. He has an incredible story and a unique view of crisis leadership that you need to hear, especially in this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Leaders, this episode is a must-listen. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to episode 13 of the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today I'm joined by Monty Granger. Monty is a retired Army major who spent 22 years in the military, five as a combat medic, and 17 as a Medical Service Corps officer. He was responsible for setting up the Army Medical Department at the Guantanamo Bay Detention Camp right after 9-11. He is the author of Saving Grace, at Guantanamo Bay, a memoir of a citizen warrior based on his personal experiences. He understands the importance of crisis leadership. So I was excited to have him on board today to talk about leadership, especially during events like 9-11 and the current COVID-19 pandemic. So Monty, welcome.
2: Thanks very much, John. I really appreciate uh, your invitation. It's um A Really important subject right now, and I really am uh, grateful that you asked me to come on with you
1: Well, thanks and I'm so glad to have you here because you have a very unique background um, And you have been there in the middle of one of the hardest times in America So I think it'd be interesting to hear that story because we're going through it again and um, And so I think you can add a lot of value to this discussion. So tell us a little bit about your military experience your military background
2: Oh sure! Uh, I started out in the California National Guard as a combat medic, uh, joined to serve my country, learn another skills, a health and physical education teacher, and I figured that being a medic would be a terrific way to serve my country and also give me a lot of confidence in the gym and the practice field, and it really did. Um, Uh, I also took it for loan repayment. I got my loans paid off plus interest in five years and Mm. made a decision to make the Army a career. Uh, Again, I chose the medical service field, think hospital administrator. Uh, So I moved to New York to return to uh, my betrothed that I met while I was Mm. at uh, Columbia University Teachers College. Uh, Met her there, and she's from Long Island, New York, so we settled there. Uh, My military career took me through a medical platoon leader with an infantry battalion to a field hospital commander. And then I was looking for a billet to uh, for a promotion to army captain. Mm. And I found this uh, unit, the 800th Military Police Brigade, enemy prisoner of war in 1999 Mm. in uh, Uniondale, New York, about 40 miles from my home. So I started there, and it was, I think, the only uh, fully functioning enemy prisoner of war military police unit in the Army inventory. Of course, if there's no war, you don't need them. Right. Many of them had served in the first Gulf War. Uh, almost all of them were some kind of uh, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, my commander uh, was actually a sheriff's deputy. So you had this incredible. Uh, rich experience in that group uh, who knew what it was like uh, to be in a combat zone and have to perform your mission under stress, uh, under very limited resources. So uh, we just you know played army in in the way that we uh, went to Fort Dix, New Jersey. We had uh, prison camps set up. We went through the procedures, we had tribunals. We did all the things that the law of war and the Geneva Convention said that we should do. So by the time 9-11 came along, um, even that day when I went into my unit with uh, one duffel bag packed, not knowing what was going on, mm. it, soon, it soon became obvious to us that we were under attack. Uh, we found out pretty quickly uh, that osama bin laden was responsible and that he was somewhere in afghanistan and a few days after that we began to realize that we were going to get called up in fact our commanding general said to us i think at the end of that first week pack your bags
3: mm.
2: wow so uh, the ensuing months up until our activation january of 2002 were full of speculation where was this place going to be was it going to be diego garcia was it going to be um, Hawaii, which we all raised our hands and voted for that, but right sure uh, a- after each guess it came back to Guantanamo Bay, mm. basically because of logistics and proximity to the u s
1: so how did how did your unit of all the units in the country how did your unit get selected for this duty? Was it because yeah. you were specialized in prisoner of war operations or how did how did that
2: right? Come out? And we had experience. There were no real active duty uh, EPW units at the time. Um, There are probably 20 or more different specialties within the military police branch. And one of them is, uh, think of a civilian prison environment. Uh, uh, The other is the internment resettlement specialty. Mm. So the Reserves really had the only trained, experienced internment resettlement. Uh, but that doesn't mean any everybody else wanted to get in on the act. Right. So initially, General um, Michael Leonard, uh, who was uh, a one-star Marine general, was put in charge of the mission at Camp X-Ray at Guantanamo Bay because he had been in charge in the early 90s from the Haitian and Cuban uh, boat people uh, being sequestered at Camp X Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was there when we hit the ground, uh, but the camp was not being run the way we were taught to run a prison camp. They wanted every single detainee, which until we moved them to Camp Delta in April 2002, they each had their own cell. Mm-hmm. So what that means is it's highly taxing on your resources. It causes a lot of stress because whenever you move a detainee, it costs two. Military policemen to move them, mm. and they have to be shackled, uh, a travel belt put on them. It, it's very uh, taxing on on the guard force like that. So uh, like, w- when we voiced the opinion to run it a different way, we were kind of kind of outvoted.
1: So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So one of the the most significant events in U.S. history happens. And within five months, you're packing bags to go to Cuba, where you're likely going to come face to face with terrorists. The right. people that, that brought down, you know, not the, the same people, but the people that basically were in war with. The, the war on ta- terrorism has started, and you're going to come face to face with these guys that came from the battlefield what what was going through your head at the time what were your emotions like
3: oh boy knowing
1: that you were going to come come face to face you're going to be in, i mean you this is not um this is real world right you're you're not going to read about it in a magazine you're going to see these people face to face i mean what, what went through your head as you were going going through
2: well that? i was angry at first john mm-hmm. um my third son theodore had been born two days before i left for training Wow uh and I had two old, two boys, six and three wow uh left with my wife and I was really angry and um that had a huge conflict, I call it uh, you know a, an emotional train wreck, really, where right, our job right. is to take care of these guys who we thought were murderers. Right. Um, we didn't call them terrorists. In fact, we were quite disciplined. If uh, okay. you've ever been around a military police unit, they are the most disciplined, I think, in the Army. And we were pretty good about calling them detainees. Uh, okay. We had nicknames for them that we'd say privately, but uh, to them and around professionally, we would say, call them detainees. But mm. um, uh, so I fought with those emotions the hatred, yet the desire to perform my duties. Uh, uh, to the standard and above, uh, because that's what we do as U.S. military people. Uh, we take our professionalism very seriously. So yes, yeah, so I was very close with them. Uh, every time we got a bird in with new detainees, I was on the tarmac uh, mm. observing uh, the medical cases, and then when they went through, uh, when when we got them to Camp X-ray, and they went through. The end processing, I was there every step of the way, observing, uh, making sure that things were done the way they were supposed to be done. Wow. And uh, Yeah, some of these guys were tough, John. I mean, one guy had a prosthet- prosthetic leg. We tried to get him to understand, let's put that on. He said, no, he wanted to hold it. And we said, we can't let you hold it, it's a weapon. Right? So yeah. he hopped around. <laughs> uh, and he was an older guy, too, maybe 50 or 60 years old. Uh, a lot of the guys had war wounds, but the looks some of them gave you were yes. If if I could, I would definitely slit your throat. Um, wow. At least wow. that's the way it felt uh, at the time.
1: So that's interesting. So you you have a job to do. You're a leader. You have a you have a you're you know you're in the military. You have a job to do. You're a leader, and you're facing these emotions, right? You're yeah. from you're from the New York area so 911 is is a local event for you right It
2: was personal for us It's
1: very personal it yeah. happened in, in your backyard right yes. Now you're called to lead and you're face to face with what's considered the enemy so how do you how do you deal with leading in where you're because I think a lot of leaders right now with the covid crisis are having their own personal emotions they're worried about their families they're worried about you know, their employees. How how do you how do you control your emotions and yet do your job? Because I think that's what what you live through is a very real example of what we're going through right now as leaders trying to lead our companies and lead our organizations with this with a lot of unknowns and uncertainties right now.
2: Sure, and even today, I had a a, a Zoom conference with the leadership of the school district I work for. And it went a lot longer than we anticipated, but it was really important because as a leader, you want to listen right, right. Uh, to what people are saying, how they're feeling, because it's your job to motivate them, to remind them why they're there. It was finally near the end of the whole conversation, and we we're going round robin, uh, and the acting superintendent said to me, uh, Monty, you have anything? I said, yeah. I said, look, we have a mission to do, right. and that's educating children. Mm. and it's the rest of our job, those who don't work directly with children and teach them, to support that mission. Mm. But it's also important to listen, to be flexible. You know, one of the the most important leadership qualities is flexibility. Mm. If you go in with a game plan, of course you're supposed to have a game plan, but you have to be flexible enough and aware enough and in the moment to realize when that plan has to be changed.
3: Mm.
2: And this situation with uh, COVID-19, the situation at Gitmo was fluid. Every single day Mm. was different. Mm. Every single day brought us the unexpected.
1: Right, right.
2: And so as good leaders, you have to have a contingency. You have to be able to trust uh, those around you that they're in this game to win it, they have their eye on the mission, but that you're going to be human about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I called my one of the reasons I called the book I wrote uh, in 2010 from my experiences at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay, because that's what we did. We were empathetic, we were not sympathetic so much, but mm-hmm. we treated everyone there with dignity and respect. No matter how they treated us, we were not going to stoop to their level. We were not going to do the wrong thing. We were going to get through this uh, as uh, the Spartans say, come back home with your shield or on it. And the shield Mm. being your honor. So we wanted to come back with our honor. uh, And it was a daily struggle because some of the troops were unable to handle the stress. Mm. Some mm. of the troops uh, were abusive toward the detainees, mm. and that was immediately uh, taken care of. And when I say abuse, it, it was minor abuse, maybe uh, slapping the head of a detainee to wake them up in, in the medical facility or mm. taking a blanket from some just really childish uh, things. But we as leaders had to be aware Uh, that these kinds of things were going on so we could include it in our orientations and our debriefs with the MP staff who are guarding uh, detainees in the detainee medical facility Mm. uh, and help try to help them understand why they were feeling this way. Um, So a good leader has to listen carefully and be aware of how people are thinking and feeling Mm. uh, during the operation.
1: You mentioned something that um, I really like to hear um, you working in the school district and you had, you, you mentioned to me, you had a zoom meeting. You actually saw your teammates face to face, right? Sure. Um, yeah. And so you got a chance to communicate. And that's one of the things I've been talking about the last few days is that, you know, we're working remotely nowadays and it's something that we're not used to. And I think as leaders, we have to check in with our teams um, and make sure they have, everything they need, uh, you know, how are they feeling? You mentioned that listening to them, being aware uh, of, of um, what their concerns might have and what questions they have. But I think it's important that we connect. I mean, now we have technology where we can connect, connect with FaceTime, Zoom, and see them face-to-face because I think that's important that you connect with them. I think what probably the worst thing you can do right now is to send out a long email. Right to your people, and they don't want to see a long email. They want to see you face to face (laughs) and say, you know what? They want to know what's going on, and 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 and, uh, they want to be reassured that uh, you know because they're scared of the unknown. So
2: sure, and this is a blessing. Things like Zoom are a blessing because you're absolutely hundred percent right, John. Most effective leadership comes face to face. Mm -hmm. Uh, Phone calls are nice, texting. We have all these different ways to communicate these days, but there's nothing like looking a person in the eye, because body language and the windows to the soul tell you so much information without words that's so important to really communicating effectively.
0: Thanks for listening to Deep Leadership. We'll be right back after a brief intermission.
1: Hey, leaders. If you're anything like me, you drink coffee to power through your morning. But what about in the afternoon? For me, I start getting a little sleepy and unfocused around 2 p.m., So I like to do something to get me recharged and refocused. I've tried a bunch of different energy drinks. I've even tried that stuff that's supposed to last five hours. Most are expensive and cause you to crash later in the afternoon. I was introduced to a a really good product by a fellow veteran. He told me to try Strike Force Energy. Strike Force is a veteran-owned company founded by a Navy SEAL, and their products are all made in the USA. Strike Force Energy is a liquid flavor pack that you can add to any beverage. It has zero calories, zero carbs, and zero sugar. Each pack contains 80 milligrams of caffeine. I actually add two packs and a liter of water in the afternoon. I get my water, my energy, and the great taste of Strike Force throughout the afternoon. I personally prefer the original flavor. Strike Force Energy is offering a discount to all the listeners of Deep Leadership. Go to strikeforceenergy.com and enter the discount code I have the watch, one word, I have the watch, for a 20% discount on your order. Strikeforce Energy, fuel for your fight. During your time, I mean, um, you, you did time in Iraq as well, if I'm not mistaken, looking yes, at your I history. Did. So with your time in Guantanamo Bay, your time in Iraq, I imagine you saw some leaders that did a great job of managing and leading during uh, a crisis or during tough times. Do you have any stories or examples of, of leaders that really stood out in your mind of, that did a really good job managing through, you know, what would be considered a crisis or or a, or a tough period?
2: Uh, yes, I had a lieutenant colonel uh, at a FOB. I spent about six months at in, Mm. uh, East central Iraq, uh, it was called fob Spartan and it was Spartan and we had to do log runs every day. We had to truck in water every day. Uh, I went on frequent, uh, runs to coordinate medical preventive medical and environmental services. And the first day I got to the fob, I met the commander and we had a face to face one on one. And he told me what he was about. And he was about discipline. I, I had this uh, little bird told me this was the most disciplined fob in Iraq. Mm. And that's a little intimidating. It is. And, and so here's this uh, captain, myself, and this lieutenant colonel, uh, about five foot ten. But he was such a friendly, kind person. Yet it was very clear to me that all the standards had to be met or exceeded Mm -hmm. every single thing every detail because as as you know in a submarine as as i learned in the in the army it's the details that save lives Mm -hmm. and it's that training you get and and i'm grateful that i was an enlisted man first as a combat medic Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, it really helped me as an officer understand that perspective but there's a reason why you pay attention to detail because yeah. it saves lives. And he was mm. very clear on that. Uh, he was very inspiring. Uh, he was a cheerleader. He was the kind of leader that would have your back if something went wrong, and say, mm. Monty, let's work the problem, not the personality. You know, he was that kind of leader that wouldn't automatically assume that you messed up. But if you did mm. mess up, it was about, why it happened and why it's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. So everyone did what they were supposed to do. They loved this man. They respected this man Mm. because they knew if something happened, he would be there to pick you up, not to kick you while you were down. Mm. And I think that's important. Uh, But just to go back a second, it's the discipline, Mm. the expectation, not of perfection but the best you can possibly give and to give that constantly in a war zone uh, is an amazing thing. He was the kind of person that inspired you to go beyond what you thought you were able to do.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's, that's excellent. And I think too, you know, when, when things get bad, I think you fall back on your training. And if you're disciplined and you know what to do and everyone knows what to do in every scenario and you've trained it and, you don't have any loose ends, you're going to save lives at the end. And that's, you know, in my experience, we trained, you know, like you said, it's never perfection, but you train till you're near perfection. So that when it did happen, you just fell back on that training. You didn't really think it was, you know, muscle memory when you did what you did. So those were, so I think discipline adds to, you know, saving lives, right? Because Absolutely. You, you know, everybody knows what to do and when to do it and uh, so and it sounds like one of the things that he was if i you know i don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like he was present you know he was there he wasn't hidden in <laughs> some office everywhere. someplace yeah right so he, that's he swore I... there
2: was a twin or a clone
1: around this <laughs> yes so i i imagine that in my in my mind while i was you were telling this story i imagine he was everywhere so
2: leadership um, by walking around that was yes him.
1: yes excellent so that's excellent um you know what about now when you're you know as you as we're talking to leaders that are trying to lead during this time any any recommendations that you would give to leaders who are trying to navigate the waters um, with this new environment where people are home and and um, working remotely and everybody's kind of doing something different than they're used to doing what are so, some things what is some advice that you would provide to leaders to help them manage their teams during this time what are some things they need to think of when they're they're managing during these kind of events
2: I think having a checklist so Mm. if you have a finite number let's say you're you're in charge of a big corporation but you have your department leaders uh, speaking to them and getting them on the same page is important Mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that we overlook uh, is stress management
3: Mm. and
2: wellness of leaders Um, Mm. you know if you look at the manuals, it says the priority of sleep in a combat zone is the higher you rank, the more sleep you get.
3: Yeah.
2: Yet we're all told as leaders, you have to set the example. So what happens is the leader gets the least amount of sleep, makes bad right. decisions, and you all die. Uh, right. I think right. focusing on your wellness yes. and your stress management is a key to success, because if you're distracted by it, so i just give you a a quick example is a, a former phys ed teacher and a director of health and physical education. We know that a mind, a brain at rest, almost goes to sleep. If, you, if you'd be able to see uh, inside the brain, and I've seen these uh, graphics, a mind at rest, uh, the colors are blue and green.
0: 20 mm-hmm. minutes
2: sitting down. However, 20 minutes of activity, and the brain is bright red uh, with blood flowing. So if you think that your brain is the most important part in making good decisions, you're right. But sh- you really shouldn't try to artificially you know, give yourself the energy with, with uh, the sugar and the caffeine. What you need to do is retrench in healthy foods and make sure you have quality protein in everything you eat because that's mm-hmm. going to sustain your energy level. But also moving around. Yes, so we're yes, all at home now. We're confined. right? right. Uh, and my wife and I, we force ourselves. We're taking a two-mile walk every day, rain or shine. We're getting out there, moving around. My kids go out in the backyard. But for a leader, it's really a challenge to maintain all those things you did before the crisis,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the diet, the exercise. And I'm not talking about overdoing it. What you need to do when you exercise is a maintenance exercise. Right, right. But every 20 minutes, get yourself up, move around, do some calisthenics, dance to some music, do something uh, fun with your kids uh, or with your, your significant other. But keep that body moving every 20 minutes so you have that blood flowing into the brain, you don't get sleepy, and you're ready to make those critical decisions that you need to make as a leader.
3: Mm, mm.
1: So almost uh lead yourself first. In other words, take care, you know, put was it, put your uh, put your own yeah. mask on before you put, put the mask, your mask on, on Right. It's
2: so funny. I told that to my boss just last week.
1: Oh, really? Interesting. Because she
2: was looking really down and we're kinda I'm kinda saying, you know, you gotta did you have lunch today? She said no. I said, You gotta have lunch, have an hour. you know. It's something, and she was just leaving a building. I said that to her. I said, "Just remember, Gina, you got to put your mask on first.
1: Yeah, and yeah. she
2: looked at me, and I, I hope that that made a difference for her that day.
1: That's good, yeah, because I think it's it's easy to fall in. You know, you've had routines. We're in, you know, we're we're creatures of habit, right? And we're in our routines. We go to the gym. We we eat healthy. We have a plan for our day, right? When we're going yeah. to work every day, and then that now now we're home. And so there's stress levels up. So we're eating, you know, maybe more carbohydrates than we normally oh, yes. do or more junk food, <laughs> more comfort food. Right. And we're sure. not moving around as much. And, and then exactly. and then eventually that leads to depression and, you know, weight gain and, and, you know, being lethargic. So what you're saying is don't don't let that happen to you. Try to, try to try to maintain, you know, uh, motion, eat well um, and, and definitely get your, get your sleep because you're going to be called on to make some tough decisions. You don't want that brain to be tired, right? You don't want that's right. to be exhausted. So that's really that's good, right. really good advice. Um, so, you know, you're in your time, what would you say the biggest difference between your, when you were, you were in the military and observing military leaders versus civilian leadership? What, what are some big differences in and um, I mean, I, there may be some pluses and some minuses to both sides, but um, are there are there things from the military that uh, that civilian leaders can gain to become more effective? Is there are, are there some things that are missing in civilian leadership?
2: I think with military leaders, we're taught to think a certain way. Mm. Uh, or one of our mottos, I guess, in the Boy Scouts, too, is be prepared. Right. Right. And we're all about preparation. That's all we do. All mm. we do is train and prepare. And you said uh, earlier in the show, muscle memory.
3: Right, and these right. are
2: things that military leaders could fall back on.
3: Mm.
2: You know, we can fall back on either a real-life combat zone experience uh, or realistic training or some some part of our career we can, we can reach back and say, you know, that was really tough, but the training really works. Mm. Um, mm. And civilian leaders don't necessarily get that.
3: Right, right.
2: Uh, I worked for the Disney company when I was a young man for about a year. And uh, I was really impressed with uh, Disney University. So it's just two-day orientation. But they show you the man and the mouse, the movie about Disney, the Disney Mm. story. And they turn the lights on and say, what is the product that Disney sells? And I don't know. We sell happiness. How do we do that? By treating everyone that walks through the front gate as if they're a guest in your own home. Mm. And to me, that's such a a beautiful thing that I can share with, with all my staff, Uh, and we can try to meet that goal but what's really going on there is that that the Disney company have that what the military has they have this touchstone Mm. that they can reach back and say what am I doing this is a guest in my home I need to treat them that way
3: right and it
2: just makes everything right again it just pulls you back and military leaders have this uh, training touchstone that they can go back and say, okay, I do this first. Then I do this. Then I do this. Mm. Here are my priorities. Here's mission first in a combat zone and safety first in in uh, peacetime training. Mm. Uh, but we have that, that, uh, practice, that training, that experience that the civilian world rarely does. And I'm, mm. I put Disney out there because I think they're one of the exceptions to the rule.
1: True. Yeah. Well, they're a mission-focused company, right? So you know what the mission is, right? And they, and they teach it to you on day one, right? There's our That's mission. It. Yeah. That's it. So, it's so simple. Yeah. And, and you can do that even in the civilian world, but it's, it's, it's rare. Usually vision statements or mission statements are in the lobby in a dusty frame somewhere <laughs> and, and no one's ever seen it.
2: No one says it. Yeah. But, you know, every step of my training, there was always some kind of motto. In medic training was soldier, medics send me. And you said mm. that as you saluted an officer.
1: Right. Right.
2: And it was just drilled into you. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go out there and help. You know, I've, I'm the the medic that, that you want to send over there. Mm. Uh, and having mottos uh, are, are so important. And one of my favorites is commitment to excellence. Mm. And that to me is can mean something important to everyone uh, that says that, that phrase commitment to excellence. What is right. excellence? You can right. have some, really interesting conversations with with colleagues and other leaders about what excellence is right, uh, right. but it, it's clear what commitment to excellence is in everybody's mind when you think about it so it's things like that that re- can really help uh, a leader whether you're in the military or civilian world uh, having that motto that the few words be prepared mm. uh, commitment to excellence treat everyone as a guest in your own home Mm.
1: one thing is similar about all of them and i I talk about this too is that it's less than four words typically so i say that a vision statement should be four words and uh in my company it's we're a different kind of supplier and that's it's our it's our vision statement that we we say and, and we all know what that means which is that we're not like the big companies in our industry so we are different and when we're going to do the opposite of what the big companies would do in terms of, you know, being, you know, friendly to our customers shipping product uh, quicker than anybody else. When there's a problem, we take care of the customer first before arguing about it. So, so it's, a, it's, but it's our, it's our statement that we review every morning when we have our stand-up meeting. So it's oh, great. reinforced. So in a way we brought that mission focus uh, leadership from the military and we brought it into uh, uh, our company. So, but I think you're right. The best companies, and the best leaders are mission focused, and they and they can communicate that in a few short words. So,
2: right, and they can they can complete the mission even though it's dangerous. Mm, uh, yes. What I told my colleagues today I says we can do this. This is our job. Right. Uh, right. Sure, people are going to freak out on you. People are going to say I can't come into work. I'm afraid. But that's the kind of. Uh, good listening you need to do so you can get inside the head and and the mind and the soul of your employee Mm. and be empathetic with them. And that gives you uh, an avenue to try to help them deal with what they're going through and help them get back into the focus of the here and now. Staying in the moment is so important to accomplishing the mission. Mm.
1: Yeah. Live in the moment, right? Live in the present, right? Right. Okay. That's great. appreciate that. All right. One last question for you, and I've asked it of all of my guests, and um, since you have a lot of experience in this, I thought I would ask you as well. In your opinion, what are some characteristics of a great leader, a leader worth worth following? What are, What are some characteristics?
2: Well, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to cheat on this one because <laughs> when you ask me that, only one thing comes to mind, and What's those that? are the arm, Army values. Okay. So, what are the Army values? They're loyalty, duty, respect selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Mm. And if you take the first letter of each one of those, it's the acronym leadership.
3: Mm. And
2: so that's what's driven into the Army officer from the very first day of officer candidate
1: school. Wow. I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I am but loyalty... Loyalty I'm 52 years old, and I haven't heard that ever <laughs> <I> never, before.
2: <laughs> never heard the Army values, huh? No, I'm uh, a Navy guy, so. <laughs> well, loyalty to me is, you know, that's everything. And I think that's right. the same with our president right now. You know, you have to be loyal. And loyal doesn't mean you're a yes man. Loyal means, right,
3: right. hey,
2: your collar's turned up.
3: Mm.
2: You know, loyalty is you really stepped in it there. Mm. Uh, or it's it's bringing a person back into the motto or back into the fold and saying, Hey, let's look at what, what we need to do to accomplish this mission mm. is being a friend. Right. It's being somebody right. that you can count on. Loyalty mm-hmm. is for me, always the number one, most important quality uh, in a colleague, in a mentor, uh, in a subordinate uh, you want them to be loyal. And that means you never talk ill of your boss or the company.
3: Mm. Uh
2: until or unless you're no longer with them. Mm. And that that is a hard sell because of the more employees you have, the more personalities you have, uh, and the more jealousies or pettiness you could have. But getting everybody back uh, to that touchstone, uh, focusing on what loyalty is, uh, and then you can just go down the, the line of uh, the leadership acronym Mm. duty respect selfless service honor integrity and personal courage
3: Mm. uh
2: help army officers anyway when when we're in trouble when when the stuff's hitting the fan you know you just remember that acronym and you go down that line you say look this is what we're about we can do Mm. this uh and uh, you do the best you can in those situations
1: Oh, that's excellent. Yeah I think I think you mentioned earlier having having someone's back having you know having the people that work for you having their back but also the the leader you work for having having that person's back as well that's part of loyalty sure. right and it's it's sure. a similar concept uh if you're loyal to someone you're going to have their back so that's really good. I appreciate that. That's something and hopefully for my listeners, that that's the if they haven't heard that either, that's a great, um, that's a great tool to remember some of the good characteristics, uh, sure. great characteristics of leadership. So that's excellent.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Um, so thank you, Monty, for all this information. I think it's been really helpful and been a really good dialogue. And hopefully, if you're listening to this, you've, you've picked up some good information um, from Monty and myself as we've talked through this. So, Monty, I want to I make sure to give you some time. How can people get a copy of your book, connect with you? You have a website. Um, how do how do they reach out to you?
2: Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, my Twitter handle is at MJGranger, G-R-A-N-G-E-R, and the numeral one, MJGranger1. Uh, feel free to reach out through Twitter. My book, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay, A Memoir of a Citizen Warrior, is on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, anywhere you want to buy a book. Mm -hmm. It's on Kindle, uh, so you get an e-version. And it is a piece of my heart and soul. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it is a very different take on Gitmo. I don't think there's another book out there like it that says, hey, here's what happened. Here's what we did. Here's why. Mm. Uh, without the the political nonsense, um, you know, really irritated me enough to write the book when yeah. the, the media was was all about making stuff up about what happened there uh, and being uh sympathetic to Islamists instead of their own U.S. military.
1: Right, right. Well, I think it's a first person view, right? It's uh, it's you were there. You had you had you felt sure. it. You were you had the emotions you. You saw what happened there. So I think, uh, yeah, pick up that book. If you're interested in sort of the real story, what, what happened there, That this is a good resource for that. Right.
2: And I don't claim the whole truth about Getmo. Mine is a, a small piece to a big puzzle.
1: Right. That is right. the
2: enigma that we know is Getmo.
1: Right, right. Excellent. Well, I'll add all these links to the show notes so that um, you go to the show notes, you can find links to get to. Uh, to find Monty's book uh, and also to connect with him on Twitter and uh, his uh, website as well. So we'll put that all in the show notes. So um, thank you, Monty. I really appreciate this. I think there's a lot of good takeaways uh, that you talked about today. I think some of the key points probably that I heard is that leaders, you know, you're in a different situation right now. Make sure to take care of yourself. Uh, Make sure to stay healthy. You know, eat well, exercise, and then when it comes to your people, make sure you're connecting with them, listening to them, being empathetic, being human, finding out how they're doing. Uh, you know, make sure you're available. You know, uh, Monty talked about flexibility, making sure to stay flexible because things are likely going to change, um, and then just being there for your team, I think, is really important and having their backs uh, during this uh, during this crisis. So. Those things are, are really important during this time. So, so, Mani, I appreciate all of your insight. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks, John. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well.